Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Good morning, man. I, I don't even know how to express what an honor it is and what a privilege it is. Um, as Eric mentioned a second ago, uh, my wife and I had the joy late last year of of joining this campus full-time, so you are our family. And we're so thankful for you guys. There was a moment during a rise when uh, my wife and I were sitting in the back over there and Mike Maiden was up and he was talking about how God was speaking to him and he was just giving this prophetic word that, that there's a miracle harvest coming. That this church, that God is preparing this church to be a funnel, to be an altar, that, that I believe we are going to see people in the millions coming through this miracle harvest. And, and I was sitting up there and I was just weeping because I just had, to, I could see it in my eye, I could see it in my heart, there's millions of people, not just, not just finding God, not just finding salvation, not just, but finding deep emotional healing in their marriages, in their families, in their relationships. And it's easy. It's easy when we get to come to a place like this every week. Maybe, maybe you even, maybe you got saved here. Maybe you found God here. This is like the only church. Y'all don't know what it's like out there. <laughs> to have pastors, they get rowdy sometimes, but man, to have pastors who are willing to show up so vulnerable and so raw and so real and so loving, man, I just pray that I would never take for granted what we have here. The, we have the two most incredible pastors, Pastor Matt, Pastor Michaela, under this covering. You guys be seated. As, uh, as Eric mentioned, Sarah's actually not sitting here because she's in DNA right now. I'm, I'm missing week three of my DNA right now. That was not planned. Uh, I think they're gonna give me a pass. I don't think I'm gonna get in trouble, but I'm like gonna ask, can I attend like week three of a future group? Because it is phenomenal. If y'all haven't been in DNA or what was cool is we sat down at our table, I didn't expect this, is people who've been with the church eight, 10, 12 years we're coming back as attendance to DNA because DNA is something that grows as the church grows. So if it's been a while or you've never been, get yourself into DNA. You're gonna meet people. You're gonna find out so much about what God is doing in this church. It's incredible. Um, and they're doing that right now. So I'm with you guys. I'm actually, I actually really like getting to do this. So that's a good thing. Uh, something else that Eric didn't mention. Eric was one of a very select a very small number of guys who socially pressured me into trying jujitsu for the first time. I resisted it for over a year. Are there any other men being peer pressured into jujitsu who haven't yet? Stay strong, man, if, cause it hurts so bad. It's so painful. I'll just tell you, if you join, I did get some helpful advice before I joined. They told me, expect to be really, really bad at it. 
like you would in anything new, right? But the thing about uh, jujitsu is everybody's growing together. So as you are getting better over time, you won't know it because everybody else is getting better around you. So you're still the worst guy on the mat. <laughs> and it's, it's true. Uh, there's a lot of things about jujitsu that are actually really helpful. I learned, maybe it's like my second or third week, I was telling uh, my buddy John, the guy who helped me find a gym, I was telling him like, man, when, whenever they say, all right, pair up and, and do the role, do whatever exercise they just instruct or demonstrated, I'm always looking for other white belts because I don't want to roll with these super intimidating dudes that have been doing it for years, like brown belts and purple belts. And John was like, bro, you got it backwards. You don't want to roll with other white belts, especially really new white belts because they are dangerous. They call them spazzy because... We got all, we're, we're a little insecure, right? And most of us are like grown men. Um, and there's strength there and there's no training and there's a lot of reactivity. And so you're just constantly flailing about, it kind of looks like, like toddlers when they're like trying to figure out, that's what it feels like when you're on the mat. And he said, what you wanna do is actually, you wanna find the guy, the black belt, the brown belt, the purple belt. You wanna find the guy that could kill you because that body is trained. It is not just strong, it's trained and it's in control of itself. It's not reacting, it's responding. It's a very different thing. Last week, actually, I was there on Friday and a brown belt named Wes, who's a, he's, he's like a big dude. Um, muscular, just, I, I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna ballpark, he's like 250, 260, he's a big dude. And he comes over and he's gonna be like our fourth guy. And I'm like, oh great. And we do this exercise where the same guy's on the bottom of this, on this exercise and the person on top just cycles out so that the person on the bottom gets um, the really important training experience of being exhausted beyond psychological comprehension. Um, I've never been so gassed in my life. And there was, there's a moment where I'm watching Wes work with other guys and it was like, it's, it's not like he wasn't trying. It was like he didn't need to, it was like he was relaxing. It looked like, it was just, have you ever seen dads wrestle with their like two-year-old, three-year-old? It looked like that. It looked like, oh, good job. And like, oh, you got me. And he's just totally in control. And at some point I'm like, I'm under him. He's like, don't try and bench press me off you, bro. That's not gonna work. He's like, can you imagine if I was actually letting my weight come down on you? And I realized, man, the problem isn't, and so he, he showed me, instead of trying to like just brute force him off of me, turn my body, work with his body, work with the energy. And you realize, oh man, when I know what to do with the conflict, I can actually convert it into something that's really helpful. And so what I, with the things that's on my heart is I wanna talk about reactivity. I want us to be brave enough to look at our own reactivity, but I wanna look at emotional reactivity because Sometimes we're not always super honest about our own emotional reactivity. In fact, it might, if I really wanted a good, a good temperature, maybe I should ask your kids or like your staff at work. Like, what's John like when things aren't good? There's, a, uh, there's kind of a, a misnomer, I think, because when I think when I talk to groups and an emotion comes up, I think it's super easy for guys to be like, he's talking to her. And a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Leanne preached this incredible message on Samson. 
And you listen to this story and you realize, you know, when Delilah was emotional, she cried to people. When Samson was emotional, he killed people. Who's, who's more reactive? And it, it lands because you realize, man, we live, we live in a culture that actually tells men masculinity is toxic. That actually tells men the protective, the protective blueprint in their DNA, the thing that there's a part of me that wants to know I'm strong, that wants to be tested against other men, that wants to know that I can protect, that that's actually a toxic thing. And when you tell somebody that their strength is toxic, what do they do? They disown their strength. And disowned strength, any kind of disowned resource like that, it always surfaces as destructive reactivity. And so we want to be really attuned with the fact that there's no getting out of being emotional. That's just the way God made us. Emotion's a good thing. Can you imagine if our worship leaders, say came up here without emotion? You rain. You rose. You rain. There would be no... Emotion is a good thing. We need to be courageous enough to ask the question, all right, when I move into a state of reactivity, what does that mean? What that means is, I don't know. It means is that the stress of the current situation, it's actually gone over my threshold of tolerance. That's when we move into reactivity. Reactivity is I'm so overwhelmed that my nervous system is taking over. There's this really special highway in your brain. Most people refer to it as fight or flight. And it's the part of your brain that has the ability to bypass your prefrontal cortex. And it goes into what we like call like kind of a rapid response system. And when we do that, what your body does is says, we don't have time to think about what's happening. There's no time to reflect. The bear is chasing me. I need to run or fight the bear, right? It's, it's tough when your wife is talking to you about dishes, but that's what your brain is doing. And when we go into reactivity, what's about your body is reacting. It's reenacting the strategies of the past. It doesn't have time to think about what does this moment need. It, the danger is too high. The, the, the stress is too high. So I just go into whatever form of self-protection I went into, what my body remembers. We reenact. That's what reactivity is. Ephesians 4.15 says, but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, that is Christ. And so being able, being courageous enough to face our reactivity, when we're courageous enough, because who knows, you, it's possible to be truthful without being loving. It's like that white belt. I've got a lot of power, but I don't know what to do with it. Truthful, I feel really threatened, I feel attacked, I, misunderstood, I, feel, I feel unimportant, I feel hurt, I feel offended. I might say something entirely truthful, but in a way that's really weaponized, right? Speaking the truth in love is actually the sign that we're growing up. It's the sign that we are growing into Christ-likeness. Speaking the truth without love, that's kind of like infant Christianity. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's like Christ, Paul, they're like we get it. That's a part of the development, but we don't want to stay there. He goes on to say, let no corrupt word, this one's tough, y'all ready? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, what that means is not all edification is necessary. That's what that means. I, 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 have, I have spouses sometimes that feel that the universe has burdened them to correct, 
everything their family does, right? To correct their husband or wife, to correct their kids. And when you say, can you appreciate that that's kind of obnoxious? They say, yeah, I, I just, I, I can see how it could be done better, right? Like, I just, I, I just want to make everything better. And you say, well, your, your improving the situation really diminishes their personhood, right? So we, not all edification is necessary edification. I'm getting, I'm getting off track. That it may, this is the tough part, that it may impart grace to the hearer. So by Paul's definition of corrupt word, truth can actually be a corrupt word. How do you know? How do you know if it's corrupt or if it's coming from love? Does it impart grace? I had a, I had a husband recently, he's really, really incredible guy. I, I just like, I want to be like him in so many ways. He came in, he's working with me one-on-one, and he, he was basically sharing with me that he's gotten to this point where he, he loses his temper, he, he raises his voice, he just gets harsh. And his wife said, one of his turning points was, his wife said to him, I want you to talk to me beautifully like you used to. I want you to talk to me beautifully like you used to, meaning like a long time ago. And he kind of stops, and he's like, Brian, I don't know how to talk beautiful. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what she's saying. And it's like, apparently you do know how to talk beautiful because you used to do it. So the problem isn't you don't know how to talk beautiful. The problem is whatever state you were in when you accessed that resource, we don't know how to get into that state on purpose. We know how to do it on accident. We know how to do it when we're bonding, we're falling in love, I feel seen, I feel understood. We know how to do it on accident. We don't know how to do it on purpose. And the tough word is that God actually holds us responsible, not just that our words be true, because God calls us to speak truth to evil, right? He calls us to confront evil and to speak truth. He actually holds us accountable for what the truth of our words impart. Does it impart grace? That's what God holds us accountable for. That's mature Christianity. That's grown-up emotional Christianity. And so I was, I was telling him, so just to, just to prove to you that you do, what, is, what does it sound like when we're in that place where we're really imparting grace, when we speak beautifully without thinking about it? Well, there's a couple of things that, that men and women do naturally when we're having like a really deep kind of connected moment with a friend, with our kids, with um, our spouse. We naturally do a couple of things. The first thing we do is the center of tension, the center of our voice, it drops. So it goes from the top of our neck and it drops down into our diaphragm and our voice changes, it deepens. There's, there's a kind of like presence and we do it without even thinking about it. And all of a sudden their voice or my voice says to the other person, I'm really here. The other, so another thing we do is we slow down. We stop talking so fast and we slow down because there's a, there's a sense in our, in our heart that the, what we're talking about really has weight and deserves space. And one of the third things that we do is we simplify what we're talking about. We don't try and cover so many things. We don't talk about so we don't We let simple things, like what this person means to me, we let it be simple. We say less words. And sometimes we just need to remember, oh, I'm, I'm in a, I can feel my body, it feels tense. I can feel this, this moment with my, with my spouse or with my kid or with my friend or coworker, it feels tense. I need to like remember what's happening and slow down. Let the center drop down into my heart, literally into my diaphragm, and actually become more present in the moment. Peter kind of gives us a blueprint for this. Peter kind of gives us a, uh, a roadmap 
And it, and it feels like kind of pulling back the curtain and be like, man, that's what I did for like 15 years of graduate school is learning this roadmap. And he gives it for free. It's, <laughs> I'm still pretty good at it, but man, that's disheartening. <laughs> that in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter walks us through this roadmap and he says, uh, for this very reason, you've probably heard this before, make every effort to add to your faith, what? Goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And he's saying, well, we get into uh, jujitsu class on day one, and we're like, I want to I learn to do that. I want to do the thing where it's like, in a couple of seconds, I turn him around, and I've got control, and it's like a really rad move, and he flips his legs around, and he does the thing, and the guy's like, no, just put your arms up around your head. Okay, just practice not getting in, in a headlock of the other guy's arms, right? Just, they call, what is it called, framing? Frame up, just frame up. Okay, okay, I did that for five minutes. Can I do the next thing? No, no, they're going to get through that in two seconds. So what you need to do is you need to practice not getting headlocked. And if you keep doing that for like six months, then we'll teach you how to involve your legs in the frame. And you're not gonna get leg locked but I want to do the thing down the road. No, what you, what you have to do, see this growth thing, in our relationship with God, it actually, it actually mirrors growth in a relationship with our spouse, is that in the beginning, it's really easy to speak truth and love. Why? Because it's new, and it's powerful, and we feel good, and we feel really safe. And then, as life happens, and we collect small wounds, sometimes we collect big wounds, it becomes a lot harder to speak truth and, and infinitely harder to speak truth in love. And so what Paul is saying is, okay, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to say, as a follower of Christ, we have to, we have to start by just adding to our faith goodness. What does that mean? If we're going to use a different word for goodness, it's that we need a direction. We need a heading. We need to know where we're going. The first two questions that somebody's going to ask, a good therapist will ask you when you come into the room, a good counselor will ask you, is the first thing is like, what brings you in? Why are you here? AKA, what's the problem? Most people, I think you should, but most people don't come see therapists, don't, don't see, come see counselors because everything's going so well. That's not most people's motivation. So the first question they're going to ask you is, what brings you in? The second question you're asking, and usually for the first question, usually the answer is very readily available. They can tell you pretty easily why they're there. Uh, they maybe point to the person next to them, or they just start talking about how hard it's been, or we don't know how to communicate, or I'm stuck in this thing. The second question they should ask you is, what are your goals? What do you want to accomplish here? Where are we going? How do we know if we're making progress? And interestingly enough, that question is often really hard for people to answer. It's actually really tough when somebody says, in, in your distress, they turn to you and they feel like they're listening. And then like Jesus does with men who are crippled, with men who are blind, what do you want? It's actually really hard to answer that question. I want to not feel like this, but I don't know what it looks like. So um, Peter is saying, we have to add to our faith goodness. We have to know where we're going. What does it look like to grow? What does it look like to add faith or to add goodness? What does it look like to be a more healthy, emotionally whole person? Once we have a direction, 
once we have a direction, we have not yet arrived. I can study the move. Oh, that's what, uh, what do they call it, a Gomorrah? Yeah, it's a type of headlock. I, I'm, I promise women, this applies to you too. It's not just, <laughs> it just happens to be what I'm going through right now, okay? Everybody should have something in their life they're really bad at. Yeah. Mine's jujitsu. Um, you learn it, but that's really just the beginning of change. Because how many of y'all know, we do not get transformed by being exposed to new information. We don't get, we can learn all the right answers and we are not different. We get transformed when in the moment of reactivity, in the moment of overwhelm, we're able to access the reality of that information. So somebody says, Jesus loves me, this I know. It's not until... Um, I'm scared and alone, and I feel overwhelmed, and what I want to do is react, what I want to do is lose my temper, what I want to do is lie, what I want to do is hide, what I want to do is, is withdraw, and I'm able to say to myself, Brian, you can do this. You are not alone. God is with you in this moment right now, and I'm able to access the truth of that love, and I'm able to experience the moment of overwhelm differently. That is actually what changes our nervous system. That's actually what rewires our brain. So the first thing we have to do is we have to set a direction because what's gonna happen as soon as you set a direction? What happens to the, let's say the young mom who wakes up in the morning, she's like, okay, today I'm not gonna lose my temper. (laughs) Don't you feel sometimes like the moment you make a decision to add to your faith goodness, there is a demon somewhere making plans. (laughs) Say, all right, did you hear that, Bob? I don't know why his name is Bob. <laughs> that doesn't sound demonic. Do you hear that, Belzy? Uh, she, thinks, she thinks she's going to break the cycle. She thinks, she thinks she's going like, to get out of this reactivity and stop losing her temper. So do you feel like today's a good day for the water heater pipe to burst? That's what I'm thinking. That might not be enough. Okay, we can add to it. What can we do? Like maybe, maybe her husband's going to call her right as the child wakes up early from his nap and is screaming and he's going to ask if he can stay late tonight. And when I was uh, kind of talking through this with my wife, she had so many examples. She could come (laughs) up with them. Doesn't it feel like that's how it works? It's like as soon as I I, I make that decision to add to my faith, goodness, I'm going to do this better. I'm not going to get defensive next time. She needs to tell me something hard. I'm going to listen. As soon as that happens... 10 things stack up and we get overwhelmed. And, and here's my theory, because there's not a lot of evidence in the Bible that demonic forces are worried about hot water pipes. It's just, there's not a lot of evidence for that. I think the, the demons aren't worried about those things because they know how life works. They know life, life will bring the adversity. You're gonna get a flat tire, a bill that you weren't expecting, those things are gonna come. They're just waiting. They're just sitting and they're like, okay, she thinks that today's going to be the day she breaks her temper. Today's going to be the day that I get a little closer and I whisper how bad a mom she is. And I whisper into her ear, what are you thinking? You're never going to be free of this. Nobody's got your back. Nobody believes in you. All the other moms do it better. I think that's the real attack. It's not the stuff in our life, right? But those things happen. We have to add, once we have to know, I'll say it this way, once we know that we're trying to add to our faith goodness, we have to know that adversity is going to present itself for the next stage of Peter's plan. We have to add to goodness, what? Knowledge. 
Another word for knowledge, if, if goodness is the direction, knowledge is the discernment. I have to add to the direction I'm trying to go. I have to add understanding of why do I keep falling into that trap again and again and again. It's not because I'm an angry person. I don't lose my temper because I'm an angry person. That is the definition of shame. It's where I confuse a behavior pattern with my identity. I'm stuck in a pattern of anger. That's real. I'm a person stuck in a pattern. Discernment, knowledge, adding to goodness knowledge is the ability to say, why does this keep happening? What, what, uh, where does it come from when I lose my temper? When the six-year-old is behaving like a six-year-old, and they're protesting, or they're throwing a tantrum, or they don't want to get dressed, or they don't want to do the thing. What causes me to behave like a six-year-old with them? Why do I go there? That's what we want to understand, because there's a reason for it. There's some reason. Man, it, it's shocking to me, actually, how kind of simple and narrow and not diverse we are, truthfully. When we, when we really drill down into it, the most painful thing I hear most men, and there is diverse, there is differences, right? But the most common thing I hear men say when it's talking about like the emotion of self-protection gone awry, which is anger. When they have a problem with anger, it's like, man, the most painful thing is when she turns to me and it feels like I just never get it right. And if you deep, go, go a little bit deeper than that, what does that feel like? It feels like a kind of powerlessness. Like I'm failing the one thing in my life that matters more than anything else. And it's as soon as I'm able to add to goodness knowledge, the ability to name the root system of that really destructive survival strategy, I'm able in the moment when I feel the protection, when I feel the armor, when I feel the temper rising up, I'm able to say, I know what this is. And I'm able to resource myself with my father and say, man, it's, it's so hard, Lord, when I feel so powerful, it feels like nothing's good enough. And I'm able to access support and reassure myself that I am not powerless. In fact, that maybe just staying present in this moment might kind of create the safety my wife needs to actually feel, really feel heard, to actually really feel cared for, to really feel supported. But we can't usually do that if we don't anticipate, say, oh, there's a discovery process. There's a deepening of understanding that has to happen to move me from this current pattern of reactivity to a pattern of responsiveness. Are you with me? Have you guys ever tried to add to your goodness self-control? It doesn't work very well. It's what, it's literally the, the AA program, the 12-step program, they have a term for it. They call it the dry drunk. The dry drunk is the person who goes into AA because alcohol has so fiercely ruined their life, and they commit, they commit, I don't care what it costs me, I'm never turning back to their drink. And sometimes they're actually really successful for long periods of time. But because they don't add to sobriety, deep understanding and compassion for themselves, why did I get stuck there? They add to their sobriety willpower, and they live an emotionally shut down life. And you can feel it. It's just like I was saying before, resources that get denied resurface somewhere else. And so the addiction just surfaces. They become workaholics. So they, it surfaces somewhere else. We have to understand that, that growth is actually, it's a, it's a, think about it this way. If, uh, if I can't have compassion for the part of me that I hate the most, then I can't care for that part of me. If I can't have compassion for the part of me that hurts the most, that I'm most ashamed of, I cannot actually support that part of me. So discovery, adding to your goodness knowledge is the ability to say, I'm going I'm to 
know my wounds and the, and the root system, my reactivity so well that I'll be able to wrap my arm around it in the moment of greatest need. And I'm going to say, hey, I see you. I've got you. We can get through this. Are you with me? Something I skipped. I'm sorry. Sound booth. I feel like they are probably just like chasing cats when I'm speaking, <laughs> trying to keep up with my notes. When, uh, when we think about adding to our faith goodness, there's this tough reality that we have to remind ourselves that it's really easy to speak the truth out of love, but that's actually not mature Christianity. And there's this kind of brutal truth that we cannot actually be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Why? Because faith the most powerful, the most effective synonym for faith, because faith is, is a word that can kind of get hijacked by religion, huh? Faith, like you just gotta have faith. The, if, if I was to replace the word faith in the Bible with a different word, it'd be the word trust, which is both a decision and an emotional experience. So becoming spiritually mature is the act of becoming emotionally grounded and self-directed, and then you move on to the, the knowledge, and there's this reality that we can't give if we want to be uh, men and women who have incredible relationships, I don't care if you're the parent, the best friend, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, or the husband or wife. If we want to have amazing relationships, we want to be able to respond. We want the ability to, to respond. That's what responsibility is. The ability to respond to the needs of the present moment, the people in our life, what they're really going through, see them as they are. And we won't be able to do that if we can't see what's going on for ourselves, that our self-compassion is actually our ceiling of compassion for other people. We can't have, we can't give compassion to other people that we don't have for ourselves. Are you tracking? Okay. The last one that I'm going to talk about is because he talks about, how many is there? Like seven or eight. We're going to talk about the first three. Because if you look at that line, Add to your faith goodness, goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance. I was going to translate perseverance. I'd be like, just keep doing it. Just keep going. Like, stay in it. Don't lose steam. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Just keep going. Add to perseverance, godliness. What happens when we persevere? What happens when we wake up every day and we keep doing those reps again and again and again? We actually start to look more and more like Christ. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And this is where it's really beautiful. Because when you start to see godliness translate into people coming up to you and being human, right? They're, they're having bad days. Their uh, order isn't correct. Their expectations weren't met by you, and they're being reactive, and you're being able to say, oh, you're hurting. I, I know what that feels like. And we respond in brotherly kindness. Why? Because we actually see them through God's eyes. Because we've done those reps so many times, we are actually seeing people through the eyes of God. And when you see Christ in everyone around you, you start to see the sacred in every moment. And Christ-likeness actually becomes your reaction. It becomes your response to the moment and to brotherly kindness, love. So the third one that I really want to go a little bit deeper on, though, do you want to add to knowledge self-control? If we were to do a different word for self-control, we said we want to add to knowledge discipline. Self-control is one of those things that I associate with the word willpower. Like I was talking about the dry drunk. I'm just going to white knuckle this thing. I'm just going to be stronger, which is, I think, I think that's the, probably the, the biggest way that we err is we, we, we know that we're supposed to add to our faith goodness. I'm, I know I'm supposed to be a little bit better if I'm going to follow Christ, right? And then I want to add to goodness self-control. I want to just like try harder and I'm going to add to goodness 
the altar call and then self-control. I'm going to, oh, that didn't work. Okay, so I'm going to go back to the altar call and we get deliverance this time. And now self-control. Instead of like, oh, I'm actually going to expect that I need to see the world differently. I need to see myself differently. When we add to knowledge self-control, what we are doing is we are saying, okay, now that I can see that wounded part of me, now I can see the fear. Now I can, I'm actually in touch with the part of me that feels scared. Spoiler alert, when you're in a reactive state and your counselor is saying, what's underneath that? It's always fear. It's always fear. <laughs> we don't self-protect because our preferences were violated. Because you disappointed me or my expectations were met. Nobody goes into rage. If they do, it's, we have other language that we use for it. No, that the, when, we are, when we are in a place of real shutdown, real pain, real activity, man, we're, we're pulling away from our friends because I heard that somebody was talking about me or we're like letting loose on somebody because they got the order wrong or we're talking to our spouse or to our friend or to our, our child really harshly. When we're in that place, if you drill down deep enough, it is always fear. John teaches us that there is no fear in love because love casts out, perfect love casts out all fear. The opposite of love isn't hatred. The opposite of love is isolation and fear. It is am I worthy? Am I safe? Am I loved? Am I known? Do I belong? That is the opposite of the experience of love. So when we're talking about self-control. I'm a little all over the place, but you guys are tracking with me, and it gives me permission, and I appreciate you. That uh, when we're talking about self-control, what we're talking about is the ability to return control back to my true self. That's what self-control is. It is, the, it, is the, it is the practice of dis discipline. Where does that word come from? Discipline. It comes from the word discipleship. It comes from the word that means I am going to model, form, practice, step on the steps of somebody else. I'm going to model myself after somebody else. And so when we're talking about self-control and when we're talking about discipline, every once in a while I should look down at my notes and make sure that I'm hitting everything. Uh, it's really easy. It's really easy when... We have a moment of clarity, like a really great message or a really amazing time where we're connecting with our friend or maybe we're going through struggle. We, we like going through a struggle and we go to like men's or women's prayer and we're praying about it. Like, man, in that moment, it feels so clear, doesn't it? I don't want to do this. Thing. I don't want to lose my temper. I don't want to go into that reactive place. And then you, you go through life and you're alone or people are difficult or something else happens and there's like another part of you that comes forward. Because the part of me that felt so clear, which is your true self, that is your spirit. When you are, when you are like, I'll just, I'll just think of a, a clear moment. Like one of the things that we hear men pray through a lot in men's prayer is their relationship with their purity, right? And in that moment, there's no confusion for them. There's total clarity. I know I want this. I know I don't want those other things. And then... They, they're, they're going through their day, they're going through their week, and some other part of them takes over because we all have like different parts. What we want to do is we want to return the part of me that's in control to the part of me that is made in the image of God. We all have different personalities. My wife, my wife has a part of her personality that's spicy. <laughs> this isn't a bad thing. This isn't sin. But my wife, of the two of us, my wife is actually the risk taker, which is weird because I'm the one that's like kind of more, let's try it, let's 
be self-employed, let's do all these things. I'm kind of, the, in general life, I'm the more risk taker, but when it comes to like really stupid things, like jumping out of an airplane or, of the two of us, she's the only one that's ever skydived. She's the only one who at 15 years old heard about a two-month mission trip to Romania where they were serving like um, orphans in the inner city. And at 15 years old, she's like, yeah, I'll do that alone. I'll go all by myself for sure. And she went, uh, of the two of us, she's the only one that's ever crushed a black widow in her bare hand, which is why I call her alter ego Rocky. That's why she's like, also there's a healthy level of fear there. Um, that it's really easy. It's really easy to get to a place where as we're going through life, life demands different parts of our personality to step forward, right? The part of my personality that kind of steps forward at work is maybe different than with my friends, is maybe different than over here. And what we need to be able to do in the moments of reactivity when we feel threatened is to be able to return the driver's seat, return the um, uh, steering wheel, thank you. Return the steering wheel to the real self, the true self. There is a... Uh, there's an image that a lot of us know. I'm gonna try and do this really quick because I'm aware of time. Um, that if you look down at your dashboard light and you see this symbol, I know, <laughs> what does that mean? Check engine. Who, who took a second? So is anybody else? No, I'm the only one? You, me and you. Okay, I looked it up and I'm like, is that right? There's just something about the first one didn't have language on it, right? It didn't have letters. I looked it up, and I'm like, that doesn't look right. But I'm sure I would have known if it was right there. So who's kind of like a low to medium level car person-ish? You know a little bit. A little bit. So when that comes on, what do you do? I tell. <laughs> what, come, what do you do? You tell your husband immediately, like a very smart. Who knows more than that? Anybody? Boom. What do you do when that comes on? Plug it. Why do you do that? But I thought you said you know what that means. You know, but what's wrong? What's wrong? You don't know what's wrong? I thought you said you know what that means. So she said, she, I'm really mean sometimes publicly. Um, she answered it brilliantly. She said, <laughs> she actually knows what to do. Uh, she said, you punch in a code reader, because that actually doesn't tell you what's wrong. All I know is something's wrong. I should pull the car over. So what we want to grow to do is we want to grow to have a very suspicious, honoring, but suspicious relationship with our own emotions, because some emotions are really easy to read, right? When the gas tank, the low gas comes on, we know what to do with that. When I feel... Uh, a little bit of anxiety because I didn't submit something on time. I know what to do with that emotion. The emotion is alerting me. I'm taking a risk here. I should go take care of that paperwork. Other emotions, more intense emotions, are a lot like that signal. We think we know what to do. Of, like, of the people, who's, who's the type of person in here that like, if, uh, if, the, if the gas tank reaches like one-third of a tank, you immediately pull over? There's a couple, not too many. My wife would feel very alone in this room. Are the rest of you like me where it's like the, 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 little, um, the little thing comes on, ding, and you're like, let's see how far we can go. It's like, it's like a game. Wow. I can't wait for second service. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask that question again. I wonder if second service people are 
the fearful people. Um, <laughs> that we got to have that relationship with our emotions too, is that we can, we might think we know what to do. Is like anxiety, frustration comes up. We might think we know what to do. And we think, oh, I'm good. I can keep going, which is what I usually do. And then when the car dies and we lose it or we shut down or we're overwhelmed, we're like, what the heck? And we're surprised by the outcome. <laughs> what we want to be able to do is to realize that there's a really critical question that we want to ask ourselves. It's not usually the question that's most intuitive in those moments. That when we're in a really reactive state, what we usually ask ourselves is, how do I feel about you? You being the other person in the situation. How do I feel about the circumstance? How do I feel about the bills? How do I feel about your tone of voice? How do I feel about your, you know, failing to take the trash out, whatever? How do I feel about the situation? What we don't usually ask, and this is that deepening question, this is that brings us into the root system, and it actually empowers us to move to a place of self-control where we can actually restore control to the true self is, what does this situation leave me feeling about me? Because that's what we're protecting. What does this situation leave me feeling about me? Oh man, it, it leaves me feeling really alone, actually. I would, have been able, I would have never named that if I hadn't like really, really slowed down, pulled the car over, plugged in, what was the thing called? Code reader. And really, like, what does this leave me feeling about me? Because when we have that information, we're actually able to transform a situation by turning to Christ or turning to the people even better, turning to the people around us and saying, hey, I know that this isn't true, but this is one of those moments where I feel really alone. This is one of those moments where I feel really small. Because in Luke, it teaches that every man, for every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, and they don't grab or grape, gather grapes from bramble bush. But a good man out of the good treasure of his own heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his own heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what we usually think is, oh, if I'm bringing forth evil, it's because... I can't count on you. Or if I'm bringing forth evil, if I'm losing my temper, if I'm shutting down, if I'm going to a negative place, it's because you're unreliable or some, a situation's unfair or I'm broken if we want to go to a place of, or if we, if we go to a place of more shame. And it's interesting to me that Luke actually describes both men, what's inside of their heart. He describes both of them as treasure. That a man can have good treasure and he can have evil treasure, which means that treasure isn't actually defined by its value. It's defined by what we hoard. It's defined by what we hold and carry and repeat and encode in our, in our minds. The process of changing, that, changing out that evil treasure for good treasure is the process. I have to actually go in and I actually have to pull it out. I actually have to name it. One of the most powerful things that actually happens down at the altar is it's like one of those few places because God has brought us to a place of like real emotional vulnerability as he's speaking to us usually during the message and he brings us to this place of self-awareness and we're at this place we can come down, we can actually name the thing that we don't name anywhere else. I feel so stuck. I feel so scared. I don't know how to break out of this cycle. We can't communicate. 
that confession is actually one of the most powerful things that happens down at the altar. So can I just, I know I'm kind of all over the place, can I just ask if, if you're here today and as we're walking through this, you can see a place in your own life where you are reenacting old fear. You are reenacting old self-protection. You're reenacting ways that you had to protect yourself a long time ago. And it's actually really hindering. It's, it's impeding. It's a wall to you actually being able to access the kind of relationship and connection that you want in your life right now. If you can connect with that, can I, can I just ask you to raise your hand? I want to pray for you guys. You know, that's so beautiful that if you guys look around, most of the room is our hands are up. Because if we're really honest, we can all relate to having an, an ugly, to having a part of us that gets scared and gets overwhelmed. In fact, if you ever get to a place where you stop reacting, it's probably because you're not growing. It's probably because that you've, you've kind of built a fortress of safety around yourself and you're not really being challenged not in intimacy, not in risk, not in faith. That's actually a really good sign. Like, if you ever want permission, just look at Pastor Michaela and Pastor Matt. Sarah and I have had a lot of fights on the way to church. We've never had a fight on stage at church. We have the two most, most beautiful, powerful, loving, incredible pastors. But God, I thank you for every hand in which that you, you are speaking to them right now. You are giving them courage that the vulnerability to raise our hand and say, yeah, there are places where fear overwhelms. There's places where I go into old strategies and the people in my life, my kids, my, my spouse, my friends, my coworkers, they lose me and they get my armor. They get an old version of me. And Lord, I just pray that as we set day one, step one in this journey, or maybe this is step 50, Lord, that you would encourage us, A, you would give us a vision of what goodness looks like, that you would give us a vision of what connection looks like. You would give it a vision of what connection with our kids and connection with our spouse, connection with our community, connection with other men, with other women. Give us a vision of what that really looks like because we never hit targets above what we're aiming for. And we need you to show us how good your goodness is, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would give her new insight, new discernment, new understanding as they're walking through this, that every single time they hit the roadblock, every single time reactivity blindsides them, that you would remind them, your Holy Spirit would remind them that that is supposed to happen, that this is actually this moment right now, the hardest moment, this is the moment you wanna grow them. This is the one you wanna give them a new experience of safety. And Lord, I pray for their support systems, that the people in there, they would have people in their life they could turn to and say, I feel scared right now. Will you be there? Will you pray with me? Will you encourage me? Will you rewire the old lie with new truth? We pray this and we trust you and we thank you in your son's name. Amen. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.